Do you remember the movie, The Perfect Storm? It was based on a book about the true story of what happened in the Atlantic Ocean in late October of 1991. The crew of the fishing boat Andrea Gale out of Gloucester, Massachusetts had taken their boat 500 miles out into the Atlantic. A cold front moving through New England combined with a large high-pressure system over Canada to produce what the locals called the Halloween Nor'easter. As meteorologist Rob Case put it, these circumstances alone could have created a strong storm. But then, like throwing gasoline on a fire, a dying hurricane grace delivered immeasurable tropical energy to create the perfect storm. The hurricane sweeping in from the southeast collided with the cold front from the west and the high-pressure system from the north converging on the helpless Andrea Gale from all directions. Ferocious winds and huge waves obliterated the boat. Only light debris was ever found. There had, of course, been earlier perfect storms, but this was the one made famous by the book and the movie. In his book, Simply Jesus, N.T. Wright compares that perfect storm to the forces that converged upon Jesus on the first Palm Sunday. The ingredients of the storm that assailed Jesus were the western wind of an oppressive Roman Empire which governed the land, the high-pressured expectations of the Jewish people and their religious leaders, and what Wright calls the wind of God, the long-awaited and much misunderstood fulfillment of God's plans for His people and for the world. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he rode into a tense political situation. The cold western wind that was Rome was simply the latest in a series of empires to occupy the area of Israel. Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of a god, the previous emperor. Rome had the world's most powerful, well-equipped army. And they needed Israel as a land bridge to import grain from Egypt. Their economy depended on keeping the Mideast stable. And so they brutally repressed any resistance. They crucified people and they used siege warfare to overwhelm cities that tried to resist them. The Roman peace was a peace stained by blood. The overheated high-pressure system that was already there long before Rome was the story of Israel. The story that the Jewish people felt was going somewhere toward a goal. They had expectations as a people that stretched back over a thousand years. God had given the land to Abraham and to his family and promised to use them to bless the whole world. They remembered the great kingdom that they had under King David and Solomon. And God had promised that one of David's descendants would rule forever. 
their hopes of greatness had been long frustrated by exile, captivity, and occupation. Even though they were back in Jerusalem and had rebuilt their temple, they were still awaiting the return of their king. They believed that the God who brought order out of chaos in the beginning and who brought His enslaved people out of Egypt would do it again. Creation and covenant. God made the world. God called Israel to be His people. And God would remake His world in order to rescue His people Israel. They were looking for a Messiah a warrior who would deliver them, who would usher in a time of prosperity and make Israel a great nation again. And so the Jewish people resented Roman rule. Their glorious temple was always under the watchful eyes of the Roman governors and soldiers in the Antonia fortress, which lurked on the edge of the temple grounds. Some Jewish people accommodated the powers that be. The religious leaders and Herod, the puppet king, sucked up to the governing Roman authorities. Others actively resisted the Romans. The zealots were revolutionaries who tried to overthrow the Roman government by force. Jesus put himself right in between those two opposing forces during the Passover festival that celebrated God's deliverance of his people from an oppressive king. Jesus came into town riding a donkey, purposefully evoking Zechariah 9 that says, Behold, your king comes to you, humble and gentle, riding on a donkey, bringing salvation. And as Jesus rode into town, the people came up to him with palm branches in their hands, waving them and laying them on the ground in front of him. Now, a palm branch was a powerful symbol. It hearkened back to a time when Israel had a revolution where they had thrown off the oppressive yoke of an oppressor who had instead launched a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Maccabees, who ruled Israel by themselves for a hundred years. That's the festival that the Jewish people celebrate every year, Hanukkah where they rededicated their temple and they brought palm branches to celebrate the rededication. Well, in 63 AD, the Romans invaded and took over. And in Jesus' day, they had ruled Israel for nearly a hundred years. But the Jewish people still remembered. And so those palm branches were not just fun little things to wave around. They were a rebellious, revolutionary symbol. Like waving the flag of your country in the face of the occupying army from a foreign land. And the people shouted out, Hosanna! Which literally means, save us! Rescue us! 
Jesus rode into town as a king. And yet, the Gospel of Luke tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he was weeping. Grab your Bibles and turn to Luke 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus knew that in just a few short years, in 70 A.D., the Romans would sweep in and destroy Jerusalem for rebelling against them. Jesus was weeping for the kingdom that wasn't coming as well as for the kingdom that was. Jesus wasn't the sort of king that the people in His day wanted. He came in order to completely redefine kingship by what He did. Because you see, in addition to the cold western wind of the Romans and the high-pressured expectations of the Jewish people and their religious leaders, there was a third element to this perfect storm. The hurricane of God's surprising, unexpected fulfillment of His promises. The people were expecting God to come and set things right, to send a Messiah who would rescue His people, dwell with them, restore the world, and rule over them. Jesus announced that indeed God is now in charge of our world. He showed by His actions glimpses of what that looks like. The beginning of a new exodus and a new creation. He healed people, forgave them, reconciled them, and brought people back from the dead. But He was much more than just a miracle worker or a wise teacher. He was the Messiah who would be a suffering servant. Rather than riding in on a war horse to mount a rebellion against the Romans, He rode in on a humble donkey. He overturned the money changers' tables and drove the animal sellers out of the temple to symbolically show that the old sacrificial religious system was coming to an end. He announced that the temple would be destroyed and that a new temple would be raised up in three days. The temple of His own body. Rather than using violence to establish a kingdom, He absorbed all the violence our world could dish out. The full force of that perfect storm burst upon Him on Good Friday as He suffered and died on the cross. But Jesus' death disarmed the powers of death. His resurrection launched the beginning of a new creation. Through Jesus, God invaded the world and inaugurated His kingdom in a way no one expected and few accepted. 
The Gospel of John begins with these words. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. The same is true today. Jesus isn't the king we're looking for either. We want a religious leader, not a king. We want someone to save our souls, not rule our world. Or if we want someone to take charge of our world, what we want is someone to implement the policies that we already embrace, just as the people in Jesus' day wanted. We tend today, even in our churches, to see Jesus as just a great teacher and moral example to follow, or a superman who sweeps in from a faraway heaven, does some miracles to get people to believe in him, and then carries them off with him to heaven. But that's not who Jesus is or what he came to do. If we take Jesus seriously, his kingship changes our perspective on everything. What if we really believed that God has begun taking charge of our world? What if we lived like it was true? How would that change the way that we treat our co-workers, our neighbors, and other nations if God was really in charge? Why aren't we already living like God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven? That's what we're promised. I think the reason is that we are caught in a storm as well. Martin Luther describes our three enemies, the devil, the world, and our sinful selves. We are being fought over. There is a dark force that sometimes takes over people, movements, and even entire countries, making them do horrible things they would normally never do. The world, as Luther describes as one of our enemies, is not God's good creation, but all the institutions and systems and societies that resist God's rule including our own. Our nation was founded on the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that last one gets us in trouble all the time. We live in a pleasure-seeking, self-centered, relativistic society where we can believe anything that we want and do most anything that we want. Our sinful selves too willingly follow the lead of the world and the evil one. We chase after our desires, resulting in tensions and brokenness in our families. It infects our communities and our nation and our world. Down deep, we want things to change for the better, but we're seduced to either try to seize power for ourselves to get what we want 
or to just keep the status quo because it's comfortable. We're often content to keep our faith to ourselves, to make it just our private spirituality project, rather than letting it change us and change the world. But God is doing something new through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. His kingdom has been launched in power and glory on earth as in heaven. He is invading our world with a hurricane of self-giving love that conquers death and makes all things new. He's changing our hearts and making us His own. He is forming a new people, a revolutionary movement to change the world. Jesus is the world's rightful King. He is already in charge. And one day, He will put all things right, including us. N.T. Wright says, When the King is revealed, and He is your life, remember, then you too will be revealed with Him in glory. Quoting one of the Gospel writers. Jesus sends us as His peaceful revolutionaries, His ambassadors of His kingdom, directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. As the church, we are the body of Christ, the new temple where heaven and earth meet. God is making His rule on earth as in heaven begin to appear through us. Wright goes on to say, the Beatitudes pretty well sum up the work of the kingdom. When God wants to change the world, He doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers, and so on. Jesus went about feeding the hungry, curing the sick, and rescuing lost sheep. His body is supposed to be doing the same. Jesus has all kinds of projects up His sleeve and is simply waiting for faithful people to pray and to get busy. Through us, Jesus is at work taking forward His kingdom project. You are the light of the world, He says. You are the salt of the earth. May you find out what your role is in this epic story that is beginning as Jesus brings God's kingdom here on earth. Amen.